All right, well, I hope that was useful for you guys to hear uh, some of the people who were here. Um, I just want uh, PJ to know I'm still planning to end at the same time, so don't worry. The, the conference is going to be fine. My remit in this first talk is not a very complicated one. Uh, I, I want to talk to you about another mark of a healthy church, which is a biblical understanding of conversion and evangelism. And we put them together because in doing workshops on these marks of a healthy church for uh, 20 years or more, uh, the, comment, the, the questions on these two marks are almost identical. And so we just finally said we're going to just save the time and put them together because if you have a, a, some misunderstanding of one, it almost always reflects some misunderstanding of the other. J.C. Ryle was concerned about this. Uh, uh, this is a Christian conference for pastors especially, so humility is a very high virtue. Please stand if you have never read J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. Please stand if you have never read J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. Remain standing, just, you know, own that little bit of ignorance. <laughs> it's good for your humility. Now, only physically look down on the brothers around you who are seated. They're looking down on you spiritually. Just know that those brothers around you can tell you why this is one of those five or ten books you want to read as a Christian, and you'll reread it in your life. It's that good. Uh, J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. So just remember that. You've now been publicly identified. Uh, and praise the Lord for the humility and the education freely provided. Please be seated. In this book, early on, Ryle, an Anglican pastor, is reflecting on some of the theological evangelistic methods used in his own day in the 1870s. And he has very similar concerns to those which led me to first write about this back in the 1990s. And he has this one sentence where he says, I declare I know no state of soul more dangerous than to imagine we are born again and sanctified by the Holy Ghost because we've picked up a few religious feelings. I think that is the kind of result of a lot of the evangelism that's gone on in the last generation here in America. Uh, a lot of it coming from Southern California. Uh, you have blessed our nation in many ways. Uh, Hollywood is not alone. And I think churches that reflect that reflect a lot of ill health. And therefore, I think a way to sound this is for us to be able to think for a minute about what it is the Bible teaches about conversion and about evangelism. So let me pray as we undertake this. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We pray that you would help us to understand what you've revealed in it for the health of our churches and the glory of your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, if you're going to go to the Bible to teach someone about conversion, what passage do you go to? I need a hand. I need a hand. Don't just yell it out. I want a hand. Tell me your name. Uh, Jeff. What What passage? I don't want to hear beginning. I want to hear John chapter and verse. Both chapters. But I want to hear the verses then. <laughs> Be more specific. So, uh, 
Yeah, so that's, that's really, you do mean John 2 and 3. Yeah, okay. So John 2 and 3. Water to wine and then Nicodemus. Okay, yep. Yeah, all right. Somebody else? Where would you go to, to teach conversion? Anthony? Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Classic section on that. Yeah. Somebody else? Where, yep, name? Your name. So that's the woman at the well, and that's verse which? Which verse? So John 4.10, all right. Yeah, that's good. Somebody else? Conversion. Yep, right back there. Yeah, and your name again? And Tom, you're thinking of Romans 5, 1 to 10 because? Okay, good. So, brothers, let me tell you what you're doing by the way you're answering the question, and I think it's, it's normal and helpful. You're putting together justification and regeneration uh, with conversion. And while in our systematic theology classes, it is good to distinguish those and to understand what we mean by those, you're right, we're, we're all looking at that same moment of change uh, where our eternity is changed. And that is precisely what I'm trying to highlight by talking about a biblical understanding of conversion. I just summarize it with the word conversion. But I do mean regeneration and I do mean justification. Uh, so I, I mean that, that change point in the individual's life of the gospel where we join that storyline. You know, one of the interesting things in, in the, the story that PJ just led us through, the well-done story of the Bible, which, by the way, you can get a, a great sort of overview and five different tours of doing that in Michael Lawrence's book, Biblical Theology for the Church. Uh, Michael Lawrence, Biblical Theology for the Church, pastor up in Portland. He's done a great job of doing that. Uh, one of the interesting things about those kind of storyline presentations, because they've been very popular for the last 20 years, is they're terrible um, if you leave out the gospel for the individual. If, if all you're talking about is transformation of the city and he's going to redeem the world and it's really cool, it's everything, and so it, it's creation, fall, restoration, redemption, or, or restoration and, and consummation, you know, and, and you kind of leave it like a grand parade, that's all wonderful, but it's all terrible if you don't tell me how I can get into it as the individual sinner. So have the spectacular kings bringing all their glories into the city there in Revelation. Do whatever you want, you know, in the, in the beauty of the end of Isaiah with the great cosmic transformation that's going to take place. But please realize what you've told me as an individual sinner is no good if you don't tell me how I can get in on it. Just that it's going to happen is not good news for me a sinner unless I am me a sinner redeemed. So, so storyline stuff, great. But secular people will love storyline stuff as long as it makes sure it sounds universalistic and everything's going to be great. They'll love it. That's the transformationalism of the postmillennialism of the end of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th century that's so dominant in America because we saw some social progress in important areas. But it is death to churches because individual sinners don't know how to be saved. 
That's why I want to stress a biblical understanding of conversion. Uh, people must know what it means to be converted. Uh, I was talking with Glenn, a 70-year-old guy, on the Cape May Ferry on Monday from Cape May, New Jersey, to Lewis, Delaware. And uh, Glenn described himself as spiritual but not religious. It's, it's, you think it's just a, a, a phrase that we use as evangelical pastors, but uh, here's a completely secular guy, and that's how he described himself. And as we kept talking, one of the things I observed to Glenn is, because you know, I told him I was a Baptist pastor, and I just put it like that. I just want to be as offensive as I can. Because he asked what I did. I said, I'm a Baptist pastor. I mean, one of the great advantages of being Southern Baptist is how absolutely offensive it is. So if you're trying to fly under the radar or be cool with your neighbors, stay away from the SBC. But if you want to just begin with the offense of the cross, embrace the SBC. Just come home, come home. Ye who are weary and cool, come home. Put Baptist back in your church name, and you'll just get right to the point a lot faster. So, so with Glenn, I'm talking, and I just say to Glenn, it's Glenn, to me it seems like you don't think there's anything you need to be saved from. And he said, that's right. So friends, that's where we are. So in our churches, there are lots of people who can grow up and be socially conforming to be a part of the community that your church represents. You will serve them best if you are very clear on what conversion is, on what the Bible teaches conversion is. It's not to be identified with a particular experience, with the way you went through it emotionally, or how it happened to you intellectually. It would be the very passages that you brothers have pointed out. John 2 to 4, a great session to, a section to work through. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, classic. Death to life. Romans 5. Uh, there were some other brothers who had some hands up. What were some other passages you wanted to point to on conversion? Yeah. No, name? Jordan? Titus, uh-huh, Titus 3, 5 to 7. Guys, I hope you're writing these down. This could be a good summer series for you. Yep, uh, right in the back. So Jason, Jeremiah, yep, new heart stuff, new covenant. Yep, that's, that's good for conversion. Of course, conversion is a wonderful idea. Uh, Old Testament word, shuv, you know, turning. So all the sort of turning texts you can find are, are great to show the reality of conversion, of change uh, that goes on. If you think about the uh, Ephesians passage, the, the, the 2, 1 to 10, uh, Paul reminded the Ephesians there that before they were converted, they were dead in their sins and transgressions. Brothers, are you being that clear in your preaching that people are by nature dead in their sins and transgressions? Uh, the Bible is that clear. Uh, there's no nice, nice, softly way into the gospel. Uh, now, I'm not, I'm not saying by my earlier humorous comments that uh, Paul was wrong to start as he did at Mars Hill and, and quote from a secular poet and, and refer to the altars around them. But he did pretty quickly get to the point of conflict. Uh, so I think, I think with us, we have to be clear particularly with people who want to hear us sympathetically, that the Bible says that the change every person needs is not merely to discover ourselves. It's not fundamentally an interior journey. 
But the Bible tells us that we need to turn. So you don't need a better you. You need a new you. See, better is incremental and a matter of improvement of what's there. There's a more disjunctive new that is more faithful to the images we see in Scripture. Jesus talks about a new birth there to Nicodemus in John 3. Paul to the Corinthians talks about a new creation. So there is an element of, of discontinuity with our past selves. Now, you know, when God saved Jonathan, right? Yeah, it is Jonathan he saved, and he is still Jonathan. So I don't want to, I don't want to try to mislead you on this at all. But we seem to have no trouble in both experiencing and understanding and advocating the consistency of our experience and personality before and after conversion. Uh, we, we still struggle with sin. We're, we're very well aware, aware that Nam is still Nam, Mark is still Mark, you know, Jonathan is still Jonathan. We, we, we got that. We understand that. What we need to understand from Scripture is what's wrong with us and what God has for us in Christ, what that great conversion is. Uh, we need to understand that it's more than just a few practices or a few ideas in our head that needs to change. We need to change. We need God to change us. Uh, Jesus taught that we have to act, certainly, but he taught that we can act only if God's actions are behind our own. And in teaching this, Jesus is sounding like, like a good Jew, like somebody who's read the Hebrew Scriptures. You think, you think of the book of Joel. Joel was a prophet through whom the Lord prophesied great judgment coming, but he also offered words of hope. You think of Joel 3, 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Sorry, Joel, Joel 2, 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's, of course, the verse that Paul famously quotes in Romans 10. And if you've ever shared the gospel with anybody, you may very well have quoted that verse yourself. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if you know that in its original context, in Joel, Joel had just been writing for two chapters about the judgment that was coming on the Israelites for their unbelief. And you've got to wonder, if you've been reading Joel, why would such unbelievers as Joel has been condemning the Israelites for being, why would they call on the Lord in this saving way? If, if they would have done that, then the judgment wouldn't have come. So why does he say this? Why all of a sudden does he say that like that? Who would call on the Lord like this? Well, if you keep reading the verse, you find the answer there in Joel 2.32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Ah. So, according to the Bible, those who call upon the Lord savingly are those whom the Lord has called. Now that I can understand theologically. That, that makes sense. I think of the way over in Acts chapter 11. Remember in Acts 10, Peter had gone to Cornelius' house to that very unusual evangelistic call on the local occupying forces. And then they seem to have gotten saved. So Peter comes back 
And he tells the people in uh, the church in Jerusalem what had happened. And when he goes up to Jerusalem, Peter explains to them, he says, uh, uh, chapter 11 now in Acts verse 5, I, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And I t- raise your hand if you have noticed before that Peter is in Joppa when he's called to go uh, to Cornelius. Raise your hand if you've noted that. I want the hands high. It'll be faster that way. Raise your hand if you've never particularly noticed that. Oh, oh. forget conversion for a moment. Okay, preachers, listen. Joppa. What do you think of Joppa in the Bible? Jonah. What was Jonah? Missionary to the Assyrians. Didn't want to go. So what, what was Jonah trying to do? Frustrate God's plan for the nations. So here in God's providence, where is Peter when he gets this vision? He's in Joppa. What's the vision? To go to this Gentile Roman centurion and share the gospel. And what happens? They get converted. You see, when Jonah was running to flee, ran to Joppa to flee, God doesn't miss a beat. His gospel will get to the nations. Pick it up at Peter in Joppa. And he gives this vision. And then Peter goes to, guys, that'll preach. I mean, just, you're welcome, Joppa, Acts 10. Have a good time. Back to what I'm doing, Acts chapter 11, verse 5. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven, by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again to heaven. And behold, at that very moment, these men arrived at my house in which we were, sent from, to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction meaning between Jews and Gentiles. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told me how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Repentance is a gift God grants. That's why if you have a child or a sibling or a parent who is not a Christian, you don't merely witness to them. You pray to God for them because you know that God must do that work, must give them that gift of repentance. Now, brothers, I'm going to believe you know your Bibles well enough and your theology well enough that you believe that theologically. Tick, you've got that. I mean, even our more Armenian-ish brother Charles Wesley 
seemed to understand that in his hymns. Though he would forget it in his sermons and his letters, his hymns, he seemed to become a Calvinist when he would write them. But does it come into your teaching and preaching clearly? I would encourage you to do a little examination. Just pick five members at random in the next month. And, and try to come up with a pretty nicely balanced question that doesn't show the right answer is this or that. And ask members of your congregation who have been listening to your preaching if they understand that God the Holy Spirit has to give the gift of repentance in order for someone to be able to repent. If they don't understand that, they're not going to be as prayerful. If they understand that, your attendance and your fervor at your prayer meeting will increase. Do you understand? Part of the way you have a healthy church is to teach what the Bible teaches on conversion. That also flows through then into what we do with evangelism. Now, because I'm here very briefly, let me just leave you five friends in your mind to help you on this further. I'm going to tell you five books I would encourage you to read on evangelism in case you haven't. One of them is a Nine Marks book. It's Mac Stiles' book. Mac has written a number of good books on evangelism. Uh, and Mac is one of the best personal evangelists I've, I've ever met. He's a, a ridiculously gifted brother and faithful in this. But he wrote a book called Evangelism, How the Whole Church Speaks of Jesus. It's in that little multicolored series where Nine Marks is kind of recapturing the rainbow for Christ. Uh, it's, it's the one called Evangelism. And Mac's books are always full of good stories of how you can actually practically talk to your friends about Jesus. And what's great about this book in it. Mac is showing how the whole congregation, or you know, a section of the congregation, but a bunch of different people, sort of gang evangelism, can help you, the individual reading it, in being faithful to the evangelistic task. So raise your hand if you're more uh, extroverted. So I, I am more extroverted. All right, raise your hand if you're more introverted. I just want to observe 60% of you call yourself more introverted. Uh, and that's not unusual. I, I, think, I think it's probably pretty normal in the population at large and among pastors. I don't think to be a good pastor or a good evangelist, you have to be more extroverted. Uh, I think there are, there are good things and bad things in, in both those buckets, uh, useful things and less useful things. But I think one of the things that Mac does just brilliantly in that little book, raise your hand if you've read that little book. Oh, a lot of you have read it. Okay. I just assumed you hadn't. Well, good. I'm glad you read it. Uh, others of you should read it too. It's short, but one of the things that I've found very helpful is for people who feel shy to talk to others, I think it helps encourage them to see how they can be a part of a larger group evangelizing someone. And I think it helps people be less defensive about the topic of evangelism. And I think if you're teaching them correctly about conversion, then they'll be more God-dependent anyway, and that'll give them more courage in evangelism. Mac's book is a good practical help with that. A second book to mention and this is a heavy book. So this is if you like heavier books. This is Ian Murray's book, Revival and Revivalism. If you have never read that, I would encourage you. Uh, it's worth the read. It's an historical work where Murray looks at how the practice of evangelism in America changed from 1750 to 1850 and how these changes continue to affect us today. So if you're one of the more reader types here and you like history or edifying stories, that would be a great book for you to read. Uh, pray for Ian. He's 91. I talked to him on the phone this week. Uh, Ian still loves the Lord. He's still writing books. He has two huge volumes 
uh, that I've, I've read one of them entirely. The other one is two volume. He asked me, I just haven't had time to read it. One's called England's Evangelicals 1500 to 1700. It's his history of the Puritan movement. So if, if the Lord should call him home today, that's ready to go be published. And then the other one is a new biography of J.I. Packer that he's working on. Because he knew Jim. They're, they're, Jim's just two years older than Ian. And so it's, uh, that one I read thoroughly last September and gave him a lot of feedback on. And that's, I'm just so excited to hear both those books come out. Ian is just a wonderfully godly writer and observer of history. So his book, Revival and Revivalism, would be very good for you as a pastor especially to help you examine some of the ways you may have been encouraging evangelism that may actually be bringing some of the unhealth into your church that you hadn't put the dots together and connected. A third one for greater grasp on the biblical and theological foundations of evangelism is J.I. Packer's little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Four little lectures uh, that he originally gave to a college undergrad group in London. It is so short. It's uh, less than 100 pages long, but I'll bet you I've given away as many copies of that book as any other book in the last 30 years. I just use that book like water for people when they've got questions. But wait, if God's sovereign, why should we evangelize? Here, read this book. You know, it's J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Have more questions? Talk to me later. Um, I'll tell you a more recent one that I think is good, uh, and, and some people really enjoy his style. Oz Guinness uh, did a book a few years ago called Fool's Talk where he talks about persuasion and recovering the art of persuasion. And I think that's a, that's a healthy book to read. And the last one I'll mention is one that I did. Um, uh, it's called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. And I just wrote it I, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago because I couldn't think of a good book to put in the hands of a, of a college undergrad about evangelism. So I literally just took a week, and at 4 o'clock uh, every day for about a week or two, I would just sit down and write a chapter, spend an hour writing a chapter. And that was that book, just super simple, gospel and personal evangelism. Well, those are our uh, five books I want to point out to you specifically. Um, in evangelism, what we need to make sure we're doing to be biblically faithful is making sure we're clear about the gospel that PJ was just talking about, about God, about man, about Christ, and about response. And we need to be aware not everything that passes for evangelism really is evangelism. One of the practices our eldership has is we always have one of our elders, at each of our elders meetings, share his most recent evangelistic encounters. And so we listen about, you know, what Ken has done recently or what James has done recently. And, uh, and then we encourage him in that and we pray for him in that. So we're trying to keep each other sharp in evangelism. You know, one of the problems with being an elder or a pastor is you're called away from the front lines of evangelistic work, back into the middle of the body of the sheep, where you really have to spend your time doing things for the sheep. And it's a wonderful, it's a, it's a, it's a God-glorifying, tender, honorable calling. But it is challenging for us then in evangelism. Uh, but I would encourage you to keep praying that the Lord make you faithful in your own evangelizing and particularly in your, your teaching of other people about it. Uh, just a couple of things you want to be sure and distinguish evangelism from. Evangelism is sharing this gospel about Christ, calling people for response. Uh, evangelism is not just sharing your testimony. Because you can share your testimony in such a way as to not make it clear that there's any moral demand on the person you're sharing it with. And in our very, it's good for you day, they can just say, oh, that's really good for you. Uh, and the other thing it's not is apologetics. I was an agnostic who became a Christian. I love talking to non-Christians. But my problem is, so here's one time, here's the worst evangelistic kind of series I ever did. 
it was at Cambridge in the early 1990s in England, and the KQ there, the, the student group, had asked me to do their mini mission. So they did three nights a year, or three nights in a week, getting somebody into a large auditorium, getting all their friends. So we had like a thousand students there, and then it Billy Graham kind of style. Then I'm supposed to get out there and give the gospel. And, uh, and I went to John's gospel to do it. And it was either after my first or my second one, the student leaders who I spent a lot of time, I was a student myself, I was a PhD student, but they were kindly, very honest with me. And one of them put it like this, like, Mark, I think you probably made more agnostics tonight than you made Christians. Because you just kept laying out all the problems that needed to be dealt with. And I understand that's because you needed to deal with those things for you to come to Christ. But most people coming in don't have all those problems. They haven't thought about all the things that you thought about. So it would be helpful to us if you just tell them the gospel. <laughs> just tell them about Jesus and call them to respond. Uh, and, and trust the Holy Spirit. You know, they were, they were very wise and mature in the way they counseled me. And I preached very differently my third night. Um, but I think that's something that we can fall into. And there are some people who just like apologetics. So if you're one of those who really likes apologetics, just please distinguish between arguing about creation or arguing about what you think is logically entailed in the flood or, you know, the, the historicity of appalling authorship of the pastorals. Uh, that's different than telling a sinner about Christ. You know, you need to be very clear. I had a friend who uh, is uh, now quite elderly, but she grew up here in Los Angeles and she did not grow up in a religious home. And as a teenage girl, she somehow became very convicted about her sins. And this is, as she later told me, she told me this story in the 90s. Uh, she said, I decided that I needed to go to a Christian church to find out how I could be forgiven for my sins, if I could be. And she said, I, I would go to a church. And she said, I would not hear anything about how I could be forgiven for my sins. And she said, I would go to another church. And she said, this, this went on for week after week after week. She said, it took me several months before I found a church where during that service, the person told me how I could be forgiven for my sins. And she said, that's the morning I became a Christian. You know. So what PJ said in the last talk about include a gospel, a clear gospel presentation and call in each one of your sermons. Brothers, don't pass that up. You may have a long, her name is Shirley. You may have a young Shirley sitting there, you know, who, who needs someone to tell that good news to. Well, there's wonderful news that we can be adopted by God, brought home to him, uh, forgiven for our sins. Uh, that's the news that he has entrusted to us. We need to know that God is sovereign in conversion. If we are going to evangelize properly, without manipulating, without mistaking those kind of religious feelings Ryle talks about for real conversion, we need to trust God the Holy Spirit in the way we share the gospel. I remember one time I was standing at the door at my church. I always, you know, after I preach, I always stand at the back door. And in our congregation, there are, uh, where we meet, there are a lot of doors people go out. So they don't have, I haven't trapped people. But it's very easy to go by and talk to me if you want to on the way out. There's one man who came up to me on the way out, a visitor. I'd never seen him before. Grabbed me by the hand, pulled me uncomfortably close. <laughs> now what that means is I am an extrovert, really an off-the-charts extrovert but with some sense of personal space. <laughs> Introverts, you may not have realized those could actually go together, but, but they can, and they do, I promise you. And um, this man pulls me sort of uncomfortably close, and he says, Dr. Dever, you just gave 
the best sales presentation I have ever heard. But there was one problem. I said, well, do, do tell, what, what was that? He said, you didn't close the sale. Well, I didn't, I w by God's grace, I was mature enough at that moment not to respond to him. I just thanked him. But in my head, I responded, Well, I, I know, I think I know what kind of sales I can conclude and close and what kind I can't. And uh, the conviction and the conversion of a soul is a sale finally Almighty God can conclude. I'll tell you one cash value of that. Stop it with your spontaneous baptisms. Stop it with your sinner's prayers. Stop it with, with these things that immediately give people assurance of salvation. Brothers, that is not helpful. You're Charles Finneyizing all over again. I have young friends who tell me they're reformed in their soteriology, going out doing this stuff, and I just feel like they're spraying gospel-resistant material all over their populations. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So the whole football team from the university comes to the church of good friend who will be here next week, and they all get baptized that Sunday, and he lets them do it, and they all rejoice, and they go ahead and live like the devil? And you think that's gospel progress? Yeah, I'll see you at the throne. I would encourage you to stop doing things in your evangelism which give people immediate assurance. That is the long-term work of the Holy Spirit in the local church, in the context where people know you and they know you over time. So much more I could say, but I'm already two minutes over. Let me close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the truth that your word teaches us about conversion and about evangelism. We pray you would help our churches to become more healthy in our biblical understanding of conversion and our biblical practice of evangelism. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.